afraid of a global nuclear disaster? Or the likes of a Star Wars cosmic conflict? Are we on a countdown to the Battle of Armageddon? What does the future hold for our world? Have you tried to understand the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, only to be confused by all the symbols? These and many other amazing questions will be answered through this prophecy seminar. Yes, you can understand the books of Daniel and Revelation, and in the process, get to know God in a deeper way. Welcome to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel. Here is your host, Pastor David Price. Well, good evening, friends. It's my pleasure and privilege to welcome you to Prophecy Seminar, lesson number 31. 31 of 32 lessons, our second last prophecy seminar session tonight, where again we're going to look into the book of Daniel. Would you join me as we invite our God to be with us and pray? Loving Father in heaven, what an amazing time we've had with you in your word over the past few months, and I pray that tonight your precious Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, will minister grace, wisdom, understanding, and enlightenment and power to follow what we hear tonight. I thank you for hearing and answering this prayer in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So friends, if you've got lesson 31 in your hands, the cross of Christ, then that is our lesson for tonight. If you've done your lesson, sit back and enjoy. The visuals, we're going to have a great time together tonight. This is a fantastic lesson, and it's one of my favourites. The book of Daniel has been an exciting study. It has focused our attention on the end time. We've seen that in order to survive the troublous last days, God's people must have a vibrant, living relationship with Jesus Christ. In order to have such a relationship, individuals must sense their total dependence upon what Christ accomplished for them on the cross of Calvary. While Daniel focuses so intently on the end time, he also gives us one of the clearest predictions of the cross of Christ of any Old Testament prophet. So that's our introduction tonight in lesson 31. We're going to our four discovery questions. Tonight we will discover the answers to the following. Number one, how important is Jesus Christ's cross at Calvary? Number two, what are the four, four uh, counterfeit teachings which destroy the value of Jesus Christ's death on the cross? And we may actually give you five. Number three, how did Judas betray Jesus Christ? And finally, what did the name Bar Abbas actually mean? So here we are, lesson 31, the cross of Christ. Thank you for joining us for session 31. I'm now going to ask you to join me in our first section. Our heading is the centrality of the cross. And we're going back to the book of Daniel. We're going back to Daniel chapter 9. And verse 25, we're going to look at the 2300-day year prophecy, which began in Daniel 8.14 and also goes through into Daniel chapter 9. We're going to do some revision. 
What prophecy did Daniel give about the Messiah in Daniel 9 and verse 25? The angel Gabriel said to Daniel the prophet, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Friends, we know from a previous lesson that the command by uh, Artaxerxes Longomanus was given to restore and build Jerusalem. Both of those components were fulfilled and that command was given in 457 BC until Messiah the Prince would appear in AD 27. In AD 27, we have Jesus appearing at his baptism. And you'll notice there, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And so there would be a total of 69 weeks that would take us through till the time that Jesus appeared as Messiah the Prince at his baptism. So just have a look at the screen. We are actually refreshing what we learned in Prophecy Seminar Lesson 13. So let's just go back for a moment. In Prophecy Seminar Lesson 13, we discovered the 2300-day year prophecy of Daniel 8.14 and that a section of 70 weeks or 490 years were cut off for the Jewish nation. During that time, there would be a subset of 483 years, which was a period of 62 weeks and seven weeks. The seven weeks or 49 years was actually the time that it took to rebuild the temple. And 62 weeks later takes us through to 483 years. And that takes us through to AD 27. So the prophecy begins in 457 BC and 483 years takes us through to AD 27. The question is what actually happened in AD 27? And that, of course, is when Jesus appeared as the Messiah the anointed one at his baptism. You can check that out, the reference to Messiah, the anointed one in Acts 10 and verse 38. So what prophecy did Daniel give about the Messiah appearing? It's not Jesus' birth. It's actually Jesus appearing as the Messiah to begin his ministry. It's from the going forth of the command until Messiah would appear as the Prince of Salvation. There would be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Let me share with you the note under question one. This prophecy has been studied extensively in previous lessons. The point we need to notice here is that Daniel clearly predicted the coming of Christ. This prophecy appears in the very heart of the book of Daniel, indicating the centrality of the cross, even in the predictive part, of the book of Daniel. Question two, what was to happen in the midst of the 70th week of this prophecy? We go to Daniel 9 and verse 27. Then he, referring to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, shall confirm a covenant or an agreement with many, the many are the Jews, the Jewish nation, for one week. That is one week of seven days or seven years, a prophetic week. But in the middle of the week, he, the Messiah, shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. We know that would happen when Jesus died on the cross. So Jesus did not die in the middle of an ordinary week, 
Therefore, on Wednesday, there's no Wednesday crucifixion here. We know he died on Good Friday. It's well attested to in history. But he would die in the middle of a prophetic week. So what we're asking tonight is what would happen after AD 27 in those final seven years? What would happen in the final seven years, that final week? Well, let's discover what it was. Jesus would die, of course, in the midst of that week. The date was AD 31. And that week went from AD 27, Jesus' baptism, right through to the end of this prophecy for the Jews when Stephen was stoned, the evangelist, and then the gospel went to the Gentiles and the Jewish probation time was finished. So friends, Jesus died in the midst of a prophetic week. What was to happen in the midst of the 70th week of this prophecy? The Messiah, Jesus, would bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Why did the sacrifices and offerings finish in the Old Testament uh, Jewish sanctuary? The answer is very simply because the Messiah had died on the cross. And I should have said in the New Testament sanctuary. Let me share with you the note. Amazing. Daniel predicted the end of the sacrificial system by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. We must never forget that underlying all the prophecies of Daniel is the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ. We're now asking in question three, how central was the cross to the writers of the New Testament in Galatians 6 and verse 14? This is what Paul said to the church in Galatia. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul was saying that he should not talk or boast about anything else except for the magnificent death of the Son of God for his salvation and for yours and mine. So, friends, the cross was central to the thinking of New Testament writers. But what a thing to glory in? Not really. In Bible times, the cross was the means used to put criminals to death. It's like saying we glory in an electric chair that you can see on the screen or in the gas chamber. So why glory in the cross? Because the cross was the means chosen by God to bring redemption to lost mankind. Well, today the cross is a venerated and worshipped object in many parts of the world. And many times we forget its ugly side. But the cross still must be central in our thinking, for it is only by the cross that redemption comes to lost mankind. If you have your pen handy, I have a text that is not um, discussed in the lesson and it's now on the screen. And I think it's a really beautiful text and very helpful. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, the believers, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What a beautiful thought that Jesus is central to our lives, to our salvation, and that his cross his death brings us life. Well, that takes us to our second section tonight at the bottom of page two, God's system which uplifts the cross. 
Friends, the devil is never happy when God's people uplift the cross. Satan knows how important and central the cross is to the Christian faith. Therefore, he would never dare attack the cross openly. Christians would rise up against any overt attack on the cross. Instead, the devil works insidiously by introducing theories and teachings that, if accepted, would nullify or destroy the all-sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. You know, the devil would like us to think that we can get to heaven by some other means apart from Jesus Christ. While Satan has tried to introduce a counterfeit system that either destroys or nullifies the cross of Jesus Christ, God's last day message is going to all the world. I'm going to pause there and comment on that. How is that actually happening? Friends, I want to tell you that the Seventh-day Adventist Church 20 years ago had a satellite system installed on all of its churches. So its people could download programs from Hope Channel and 3ABN, two Seventh-day Adventist uh, broadcasting channels in America. Since that time, there's been a new one called Amazing Discoveries Channel. But now we don't have to access this via satellite. It can be accessed via the internet, which is still by satellite, but you know what I mean. So there is the uh, Hope Channel, the official channel of the church. There's 3ABN, the Three Angels Broadcasting Network. And there was a newer channel started a few years ago called Amazing Discoveries that focus on history and archaeology. So friends, this is how the gospel is being beamed around the world. And this fulfills what we just read, that God's last day message is going to all the world today. And that message restores truths that Satan has tried to weaken, hide or destroy. What are those truths, friends? I have to take a moment to just go through them again. Number one, the first angel's message is a call to the world to remember the Lord God by worshipping him on the day that celebrates the six days of creation, the six literal days of the creation week. And by worshipping on every seventh day Sabbath, people are showing that they do not believe in evolution, that they believe in the work of God, not the work of man. The second angel brings a fearful message to the earth that people need to come out of false religion around the world. It's interesting today that all the churches are banding together, which looks like the right way to go, the way of love. But God is giving a different message that we must not join again, join together with other faiths that do not honor the Bible and follow it to the letter of the law. Thirdly, we are called to receive not the mark of the beast, a mark of rebellion against God's law and God's power. These three angels' messages need to be given by God's last day people as God is getting a people ready to go back to heaven. So that message, the three angels' message, restores truths that Satan has tried to weaken, hide or destroy. In restoring these truths, God's last day message uplifts the cross of Christ, showing that man cannot be saved by his own efforts, but that he really needs Jesus Christ. It restores the centrality of the cross to the Christian faith. 
we notice that in Satan's system, the focus is self-centered and the foundation is salvation by works or man's own effort. But in God's system, the focus is on Christ Jesus and is Christ-centered. And the foundation is salvation by grace as a gift from God. Well, I'm asking you now to join me in question four, halfway down page three. If you're uh, joining us via YouTube, the lesson is downloadable and is in the description bar under the video. Which of these up, which of these teachings uplifts the cross of Christ? The two options are, is it creation or is it evolution? Well, let's find out. The doctrine of evolution teaches that the human race began as a one-celled organism, split into two cells, four cells, etc., and gradually evolved through millions of years until eventually humans came into existence. Its basic tenet is the natural progression of mankind apart from God. However, if people are progressing naturally, ever advancing and getting better all the time, then they would have no need of Jesus Christ and his cross. In fact, the doctrine of evolution destroys the need for the cross, for it says that people can lift themselves up by their own bootstraps and solve their own problems. Thus, they do not need Jesus or the cross. While evolution teaches that people are getting better and better and can solve their own problems, Creation teaches that people started out from the hand of the creator perfect. They then fell from their higher state and desperately need the cross and the relationship with Jesus to lift us up from the mire of sin and restore them to that lost estate. Friends, evolution is salvation by man's own works and progress. Creation says that in order to be saved, people need Jesus Christ. This is salvation by grace. But evolution is a single cell crawling out of a cold mud puddle. Meanwhile, creation teaches that we were created with a noble heritage in the image of God. Evolution teaches that our lives are controlled by impersonal forces of accident and change while creation teaches us that our future is in the hands of a loving saviour. Evolution teaches that change takes millions of years, whereas creation teaches that we can have a new life right now. So let's go back to our question. Which of these two teachings uplifts the cross of Jesus Christ? Is it creation or evolution. Friends, it's self-evident that creation is the one. Evolution is never mentioned in the Bible. It is actually condemned in the Bible because God creates in six literal days, 24-hour periods. And so, friends, creation is a very precious memorial of the work of God in creating this planet, the beautiful creatures on it, the plants, and uh, all of the magnificent environment. And then on the sixth day, he made Adam and Eve the start of the human race. We're in question five at the bottom of page three. Thank you for joining us. Which of these teachings uplifts the cross of Christ? Is it a life sustained 
independent of God? Or is it life only through a relationship with Jesus Christ? Man in sinful rebellion has sought to deny God's existence, sovereignty and life-sustaining power. If we deny that God exists, that he created us, and that there is no higher authority than our own wishes, we then become a law unto ourselves. We do not recognize our true condition, for there is no standard by which to judge, and everyone else is in a similar condition. In this way, we become our own standard, our own judge, our own God, and the devil is perfectly happy to have us ignore God. His claims, and especially his life-changing power, that is ready to be freely and lavishly given. Thus blinded and kept in ignorance, we become enslaved to the passions of the world with its resulting destructions, as described in 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. So if you and I can be kept either through ignorance, fear, pride, or any number of means from turning to God, experiencing his love and entering into his plan for our ultimate best happiness. Then the devil has retained our allegiance, even without us knowing it, as in Romans 6.16. Friends, the belief in life sustained apart from God tends to turn our focus on ourselves and on our own desires History records countless instances of individuals with no higher ideals than to please themselves. The unhappiness and disastrous consequences of such abandonment to self is also recorded. Children left to their own whims become selfish, delinquent, and totally unhappy. So recognizing God, as our creator, sustainer, life giver and saviour, results in a purposeful life focused outside our immediate selves and uplifts the cross of Jesus Christ. Recognising our life only in Christ brings true meaning, purpose and ultimate happiness to life here and in heaven throughout eternity. Friends, lesson 32 in our next session and final session will be uh, awesome study on the kingdom of heaven and the new earth. So we're asking the answer to question number five. Which of these two teachings uplifts the cross of Jesus Christ? Is it a life sustained independent of God? Or is it a life only sustained through a relationship and a dependency with Jesus Christ? I think the answer is obvious. Question six halfway down page four, which of these teachings uplifts the cross of Christ? And uh, we're given two options here. Is it the law done away with, or is it an eternal law, which is a reflection of the character of God? Friends, the devil would have us believe that the Ten Commandments have been abolished, that Christians no longer need to keep them. The Bible actually says in 1 John 3, 4, 
that sin is lawlessness. If there was no law, then there would be no sin. And if there was no sin, there would be no reason for Jesus to die to save us from sin. The teaching that wants to do away with the law of God also virtually destroys the need for Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Let's pause a moment. I'd like to show you something that's quite amazing. If you do away with God's law, you also do away with the cross. Have you seen the link to this yourself? Maybe you have, but maybe you haven't. Would you allow me to share this with you? Number one, if there's no law, there's no sin. If there's no sin, there's no sacrifice for sin. If there's no sacrifice for sin, well, there's no cross. If there's no cross, there's no saviour. And if there's no saviour, there's no hope. So if we go from no law, we go to no cross, and then we go to no hope. Isn't that interesting about how salvation is totally destroyed when we do away with God's law? So friends, we're asking now, what is the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is to show a person that he is a sinner in need of the cleansing power of Christ. If there is no law, there is no sin and thus also no sinners. All this is apart from and independent of Jesus Christ. Whenever the law is upheld, not as a means of salvation, but to point out sin, it clearly uplifts the cross and shows a person his need of Jesus. When one looks at the law, he realizes that he cannot save himself because he's powerless to keep the law perfectly. So he needs the cleansing power of Christ. Thus, the teaching that uplifts the law of God really does emphasize salvation by grace and Jesus Christ's wonderful forgiveness from sin. Whereas the teaching that eliminates the law makes every person accountable only unto himself and does away with the need for God, the need for grace, or the need for the cross. We're at the top of page five and we're looking at question seven, but we need to finish question six first. Which of these two teachings uplifts the cross of Christ? Friends, is it the law done away with or is it the law as an eternal reflection of God's character? You know, it's interesting. People are happy to do away with God's law. They do away with God's law in an instant. Normally they do that by throwing out the fourth commandment. But friends, none of us would consider cancelling the laws of the land or the laws of the roads tomorrow and believe that we could go out and still be safe with all the road rules cancelled. It would be equally foolish to believe that any of God's laws that were given to us for eternity could be done away with. Let's uh, go into question seven at the top of page five. Which of these doctrines uplifts the cross? Number one, is it God's seventh day Bible Sabbath? Or is it substituting another day of worship for the Sabbath? There are two days of worship. Um, that rival, God's seventh-day Sabbath, one each, one is each side of the seventh day. 
but let's go and have some extra information. I'm going to ask you to pause in your lesson and just direct your attention to the screen. I have some extra information that is not contained in the lesson. So we're looking at God's seventh day Sabbath. We're also looking at other counterfeit days of worship. So what can we learn? I want to take you into Isaiah 58, but let me give you some background before we do that. Thousands of years ago, the Lord God through the prophet Isaiah predicted that the seventh day Sabbath would be once again remembered and restored upon the earth. And a special group would be raised up to preach the last day message, which included this broken law or this breach in the law. What am I talking about the broken law and what am I referring to in a breach of the law? Well, let's go to Isaiah 58 and verse 12 in the New King James Version. Those from among you, Isaiah writes, shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. You know, the immediate context of this is that it is referring to Israel going back out of captivity from Babylon and formerly from Assyria, going back home and rebuilding. And they'd be known as the repairers of the breach, the holes in the walls and the restorer of the streets to dwell in. But there would also be a last day fulfillment of these words. Let's go to the New International Version and understand it again. We're wanting to find out what is the repairer of the breach. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins, Isaiah wrote, and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. So what is the answer to this question? What is the repairer of the breach or the repairer of broken walls? Friends, the next verse gives us the answer. What part of God's law has been and will be damaged. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, so here it is, the fourth commandment has been damaged, injured, and broken. God says to his people through the prophet Isaiah, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure and your business on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honourable, and shall honour him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Friends, the blessing is in verse 14. We're still in Isaiah 58. Then you, my people, shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth. Is this a message from Isaiah alone? No. God puts his stamp on this one. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. So friends, people say that the Lord's day, the only day of worship is Sunday, the day of the sun Sunday. And they quote Revelation 1.10 that I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. But when they claim that, they are absolutely wrong because in Matthew 12.8, Jesus said, for the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. In Mark 2.28, Jesus himself said, therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Lord means he's the ruler. He's the creator of that day. So if he is the Lord of the Sabbath, the creator, and it's his day, then the Lord's day logically 
has only ever been the seventh day Sabbath. Therefore, the Sabbath is the Lord's day. So friends, where has a breach been struck in God's law? Have you ever realized that the Ten Commandments are a wall, a hedge of protection around God's people? And so friends, notice here, number four, on the bottom right-hand corner, you will see there, number four, keep the Sabbath holy. A breach has been made in the wall because the day has been changed. In Isaiah 58, 12, we were told God's last day people shall be called the repairers of the breach. You will be called the repairer of broken walls. What is this referring to? It's referring to the fact that God had to raise up a last day people to bring back his seventh day Sabbath, where is found his name. Sabbath contains the name of God, Abba, Father or Daddy the word that Jesus used for the Father. The Sabbath contains God's name. It's strong and powerful, and it also contains his seal. The seal of God is found in the Sabbath, and we would all want the seal of God because the opposite to the seal of God is the M-O-B, the mark of the beast. So friends, notice on the screen, Satan, through earthly powers, has smashed a hole in God's Ten Commandment law. And God's last day people are to repair that wall and to cement up that breach, to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, to bring that day before the last day peoples of the world, as in the first angel's message. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the seas and the fountains of waters. So friends, the Seventh-day Adventist church humbly recognize that they have been called to repair the hole cut into God's Ten Commandment law by other rival worship days. One after the Seventh-day Sabbath on the first day of the week, one before the Seventh-day Sabbath on the sixth day of the week. It seems like half the world keeps the first day of the week and half the world keeps the sixth day of the week. But God has asked us continually and the day has never changed to keep his seventh day Sabbath. Well, friends, I hope that uh, was helpful to give you some extra information. We're in question seven at the top of page five. Which of these two doctrines uplifts the cross? Let's understand more. Is it God's seventh day Bible Sabbath or is it substituting another day of worship in place of the Sabbath? The seventh day Sabbath is God's chosen memorial to his creation, redemption and is a great gift to mankind. What is that gift? It is the gift of time. You know, friends, that God wrote his name on time when he wrote his name on the seventh day Sabbath. And so the gift of time to be with him in a special relationship is one of the greatest gifts of mankind. Billions of dollars are spent to gain precious time, yet God gives it to us freely. Those things that are important for us to take time for, we take time for. Those things that are not important to us, we say, no, nah, we're too busy for that. I don't have time. We are so important to God that he sets a particular appointment aside each week in his schedule just to enter into and strengthen 
that special relationship that he uh, has with us? Is he important enough for us to do the same? There is a very important question. Is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, number one in our lives, or is he not? And what's taking his place in my life? And what's taking his place in your life? It's worth thinking about, isn't it? By keeping the seventh-day Sabbath, we recognize Jesus as the creator. By keeping the seventh-day Sabbath, we recognize him as our authority and our lawgiver. And by keeping the seventh-day Sabbath, we also recognize Jesus Christ as our redeemer, the one who died on the cross to save us from sin. So, friends, in six days, God created the heaven and the earth and then rested the seventh day. 4,000 years later, Jesus Christ came in the flesh and went to the cross. On the same sixth day of the week, he hung upon the cross and cried, It is finished. Then he went to the tomb and rested on the same seventh day Sabbath. Now a sign of his finished work of redemption. I'd like to pause a moment. Friends, at the end of the creation week, Day one, two, three, four, five, six. Day six is the day when Adam and Eve were created. On the seventh day, beginning at sunset, Friday night, the Lord God rested and began to keep the seventh day Sabbath. You can read more about that in Genesis 2, 1 to 3. So at the end of the creation week, the Lord God rested from his work of creating and making the earth. As you look on the screen, at the end of Jesus' Passion Week in Jerusalem, he dies Friday afternoon after 3 p.m., sometime after 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And then he rests in the tomb on the seventh day Sabbath before rising on the first day of the week. Friends, can you see the parallel? That Jesus rests in the tomb after recreating mankind into the image of God for all those who would choose to follow Jesus. So there's a parallel between the cross of Jesus Christ and creation. The creation week, the Lord God rests on the seventh day Sabbath. He rests from his work of creating. It's a celebration of him as creator, not a celebration of evolution. And then Jesus Christ rests again at the end of the creation week from recreating us to be saved under salvation for all eternity for those who would choose him. And so I think that is an amazing parallel. To introduce the Sabbath on any other day of the week, we would be denying his work as creator and we would be denying his authority as our lawgiver and we would be denying his finished work on the cross as our redeemer. So every time God's system of truth is emphasized, we uplift, uphold and exalt the cross of Christ. The cross is the central point of the Christian faith. Let each one of us make certain that we are continually uplifting Jesus and the cross by emphasizing and accepting those great truths that center in the cross of Jesus Christ. Which of these two doctrines uplifts the cross? We have to choose one. 
Is it God's seventh day Bible Sabbath that's never changed? Or is it substituting another day of worship for the Sabbath? Friends, it has to be God's seventh day Sabbath. For in the Sabbath is God's name and in the Sabbath is God's seal. It's very, very serious. Before we move on to our next heading, I just want to have a summary of those four or five counterfeit truths that we've discussed. Let's have a look at them. On the screen. So friends, in point number four there, if you can change the seventh day Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, then in point number three, if you can convince people that God's Ten Commandment law is done away with, then in point number two, if the Ten Commandment law is done away with and you can convince people to live their lives without God, then in point number one, if people then live their lives without God, they do not need God and therefore they will very easily believe in evolution or our unassisted human development without or outside of our God. By then, you've gone down a path whereby you've done away with the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is a very, very serious eventuality to go down this path, a one-way trip into hell. Why? Because now you don't have a saviour. No saviour, no salvation, and no eternal life. And so then there is only one path left. And this is not the path that God wills, but the path that people choose. And that is the path to eternal destruction in the lake of fire. I'm asking you to join me in this serious lesson tonight. It's heading number three, the cross of Jesus Christ. We're at the bottom of page five. Notice now the events of Calvary as our Savior went through with his great sacrifice to secure our redemption on the cross of Calvary. Before I proceed, I would like to pay tribute to these images that are used here in the Prophecy Seminar in an educational and teaching context. They are taken from Jesus of Nazareth. I have this DVD and I have the book that went with the movie and this is where the images come from. Friends, I hope that they will bring the Christ event and the cross to you in a powerful way in this session. Well, will you join me in question number eight? We're at the bottom of page five. What prayer did Jesus Christ pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? We go to Matthew 26 and look at two verses where Jesus is struggling with his own will, his human will, and the will of God. And Jesus went a little further, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup, cup of what? A cup of suffering, woe, and sin, pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Friends, the greatest uh, sacrifice and hardship that you and I will ever go through is to repress our pride and arrogance and selfishness and submit our hearts and wills to the will of God, the eternal will of God. Let's go to verse 42. 
Again, a second time, Jesus went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And there's our answer. What prayer did Jesus pray in the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus prayed that the Father's will would become his will. That's the prayer that I pray. And I hope that's the prayer that you will pray and learn to pray too. You know, friends, it was in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus prayed the prayer of submission. As he agonized with God, the Bible says that he sweated great drops of blood. See Luke 22, 44. Here Jesus was tempted to leave the world to itself and go back to the Father, but to secure people's redemption, he prayed, not my will but yours, your will be done. As Jesus prayed this prayer of submission, the sins of the entire world were rolled upon his shoulders. He became sin for the human race, and as the weight of sin fell upon him, Jesus fell prostrate upon the ground. That takes us to question nine. How then did Judas, one of the disciples, betray the Son of God in Matthew 26, 48 and 49? Now his betrayer, Judas, had given them, the temple guard and soldiers, a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately, Judas went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Friends, this is what we know in idiomatic speech as Judas' kiss, the kiss of betrayal. It also is um, become the saying, the kiss of death. As Jesus came forth from the garden, soldiers and multitude were coming up the hillside. Judas came forward and betrayed the Son of God with a kiss. Jesus was then arrested, taken to Caiaphas' judgment hall, and there went through the mockery of a trial. Witnesses were hired to lie and testify against him. And finally, they condemned the innocent Son of God. However, the Jewish rulers were not able to execute him. So they took him to Pilate to secure his condemnation. They had to get the Roman death penalty to kill the Messiah, the Son of God, who was also the Son of Man. Well, how did Jesus respond when standing before Pilate? How do you respond when you're under attack and you're ridiculed and humiliated? Jesus is our example. We go to Matthew 27, 12 to 14. Now, while Jesus was being accused by the chief priests and elders of the Jews, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? How did Jesus respond when standing before Pilate, friends? He answered nothing. He would not cast his pearl before the swine, for they were not open to truth. They were hell-bent on the death of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and nothing could be said to turn their hearts from this evil purpose. 
Friends, if you're ever in a situation like this, where you might be arrested and falsely accused, Jesus is our model. I remember at this time that he said something absolutely remarkable. And I'm sure when he said this, he looked up and with a penetrating gaze, looked straight into Pilate's eyes and said these words. You have no power over me, except it be given thee by my Father in heaven. Friends, if God deliver us, delivers us into a position of helplessness, fallibility and death, then we do not have to do anything to rescue ourselves because we're submitting to the Father's will. We do not have to be afraid and God will give us the composure, the calmness that Jesus has. We can claim the promise in Isaiah 27, 3, that thou will keep us in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on him, on thee, Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it? Here was Jesus falsely accused, falsely condemned, yet in perfect control. Remember Jesus had been through the ordeal of Gethsemane, the agony of the trial, a night without sleep. His nerves must have been rubbing raw. And yet he stood there in perfect composure and calm. Well, Pilate had seen a lot of criminals and murderers. How did Pilate react to Jesus Christ being in perfect control? We get the answer in Matthew 27, verse 14. Thank you, Matthew, for writing this down. But Jesus answered Pilate not one word so that the governor marveled greatly. Why did Pilate marvel at Jesus' friends? I'm sure he had hardly seen many men who did not curse, who did not swear, who did not ridicule, argue and try and break free and escape. But Jesus had drunk in the cup of suffering, sin and woe. And that cup he was going to drain the bitter dregs of that you and I, the guilty sinners, might be washed and cleansed and go free. So friends, when you look at Jesus here with Pilate, we see his almighty strength. His hold is upon Heavenly Father. And so we see Jesus, not only the Son of God here, but Jesus, the Son of Man, representing us. What choice did Pilate offer the multitude of the Jews in Matthew 27, 15 to 18? Now at the feast, the governor, Pilate, was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Verse 17. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ, for he knew that they had handed Jesus over because of envy. Friends, envy and jealousy always leads to hatred and sometimes from hatred to death. What choice did Pilate offer the multitude? He gave them the choice that he thought was brilliant, a choice between a murderer and an innocent man. Surely he could get Jesus off this way without any troubles. The choice was between Christ or Barabbas. 
just want you to have a look on the screen. There's a dilemma here between the two Jesus Barabbases. Are you aware of what's going on here? Maybe some of you are, and maybe some of you aren't. Let me explain. Firstly, there is Jesus Barabbas. Bar means son of, Abba means father. So there is the rough criminal, the murderer, the insurrectionist, the one who is going to deliver Israel from the Jews, from the, the Jewish nation, Israel from the Romans. Friends, this is Jesus Bar Abbas, Jesus' son of a father. But there's also the other one, the Jesus we know, Jesus Bar Abba, and this is Jesus' son of the father. And so we have a contrast here. On one side, we have the condemned criminal, Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas. And on the other side, we have Jesus Bar Abba, Jesus, son of the father. And what happens, friends? Well, something incredible happens, and that is that the crowd under the control of Satan and evil angels choose the wrong man to go free. In the movie Jesus of Nazareth, there is a scene which is not recorded in the Bible. So we do not know if it ever happened. Possibly, but possibly not. Jesus Bar Abbas comes to Jesus Bar Abba and says, Master, we hear that thou art a great magician. And if thou camest and dwelt with us and fought with us, then we could overcome the Romans and you could establish your kingdom. Jesus looked down and then looked up into Barabbas's eyes and said, you don't understand. My kingdom is not of this world. Friends, I want to ask myself tonight, is my heart in the kingdom of this world like Barabbas or is my heart in the kingdom of that world? That's the question I'm asking you to search your heart for tonight. And I'd like you to identify under the prayer and power of the Holy Spirit's anointing to find out which world you belong to. Because without a born-again experience, we will always be people of this world, always be people of materialism, always be people of status, always people tied to our family, in ways that deny the kingdom of God. Question 13 at the bottom of page six, whom did the people ask to have released? I think you know the answer, Matthew 27, 20 to 22. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor, Pontius Pilate, answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And what did the crowd say? Barabbas, Barabbas, give to us Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, well, what then shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Friends, the people chose Barabbas. Remember, this was the majority of church-going people who asked that Barabbas be released and Jesus be crucified. 
Many people make religious decisions based on what the majority do. Please note that the majority of church-going religious people in the time of Christ asked for Barabbas and called on the authorities to crucify Jesus. Therefore, we cannot ever base our religion on what the majority does. It's very dangerous to do that. Question 14. What was Pilate's response to the call to crucify Jesus? In Matthew 24, 26, 24. In Matthew 27, 24 to 25. When Pontius Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all against the crowd, but rather a tumult or a riot was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people said and answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Friends, that messianic curse, that blood guilt curse was carried by the Jewish people for years and years and culminated in them being hunted, criticized, judged, persecuted, and eventually exterminated around the world, especially culminating in World War II. Friends, what was Pilate's response to the call to crucify Jesus Christ? Pilate merely washes his hands. You can see this man has a wishbone. He certainly doesn't have a backbone. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew that Jesus was falsely accused and condemned, but he feared the crowd. He saw what was right, but he washed his hands. You know, many of us are like Pilate. We examine the truth from all angles. We admit that it's right. It's in the Bible, but do we follow it? Are you a Pilate? After washing his hands, what did Pilate do in Matthew 27, 26? Then Pilate released Barabbas to them, the murderer. And when he had scourged Jesus or scourged Jesus, he delivered Jesus up to be crucified. To not take a stand to follow Christ is to take a stand to crucify Christ. Pilate washed his hands, but in the next moment he delivered Jesus to be crucified. If an individual does not make a decision to follow Jesus, it is a decision to crucify him. Question 16, before crucifying Jesus, what did Pilate order? We're in Matthew 27, 26 to 31. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he'd scourged Jesus or scourged Jesus, he delivered Jesus to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus to the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. And when they twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and placed a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they'd mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Before crucifying Jesus, what did Pilate order? He ordered that Jesus be scourged. The pure, innocent Son of God is stripped, scourged. A crown of thorns is placed on his brow. They spit in his face. And remember, he went through all of this for you and for me. 
Friends, do you really understand what is going on here? As the soldiers would get that whip, which was made of strips of leather with bone or metal placed in the end, it would come around the person and lodge up over their back and into their face and into their beard. And on the back swing would pull pieces of beard and flesh out of the face. Can you imagine the agony of that? In the movie here, Jesus of Nazareth, as Jesus is whipped and scourged, he's hit so hard that he cries out and the horses whinny down the line and wince. Friends, this act of scourging was so horrific that Roman soldiers wouldn't do it. And so the Scythians were brought in to do the flogging. What did Pilate say to the multitude when he brought Jesus forth again in, in John 19 and verse 5? Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Ecce homo. In Latin, behold the man. That's what Pilate said when he brought Jesus out. Friends, in that one person was Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the God-man. But also there was that human side. That is Jesus, the Son of Man. Behold the man as he carries that heavy wooden cross weighing over a hundred pounds up Golgotha's hill. Behold the man as they lay him out on the cross and nail his hands and feet to the wooden tree. Behold the man as they lift up the cross and drop it into place, jarring the wounds in those hands and feet. The cross was so constructed that when a person hung upon it, every joint in the body would be out of shape, causing the most excruciating pain ever known to man. That's where the word excruciating comes from. Ex meaning out of, crucis meaning the cross. A pain that comes out of the cross is excruciating. Many people on the cross became raving maniacs and the soldiers would have to go up on the cross and cut out their tongues to stop their terrible cursing. And why were they cursing, friends? They were cursing because of the unbearable pain. Question 18 at the top of page 8. What did Jesus cry out while he was on the cross in Luke 23, 34? Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. I want you to imagine that you are hanging on this cross. Are you thinking about the people who are crucifying you there? Are you thinking about the people who are about to kill you? Are you caring about the needs of those who are about to light the fire in front of you and burn you at the stake? Friends, this shows the love of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit for wretched humanity. That Jesus is not thinking about his own pain and his own needs. And this shows us the divine love from heaven. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't have any idea that they're about to crucify the Son of God. We're going to question 19. What despairing cry did Jesus utter on the cross? We're in Mark 15 and verse 34. Mark 15 and verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. What was he saying? Eli, Eli, 
Lama Sabakthani, which translated is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, this is remarkable. This is Jesus' cry out to the Father. It's a cry to find out whether the Father still loves him. Has the Father withdrawn the rays of light and glory from the cross as he has to? Yes, he has. Friends, forsaken of God? Yes, absolutely. Jesus on the cross had become sin for the human race. Therefore, the Father separated himself from the Son as Jesus bore the curse of God upon sin. It was this that broke the heart of the Son of God. It was not the physical suffering, but the mental anguish that Jesus went through as he died the death of sinners. Friends, do you really understand what happened at the cross? Do you really? Most people think they know what happened there, but they haven't got a clue. There were two events happening there at the same place at the same time to the same man. One is the event we all know about, the crucifixion with all the violence. But the other one is the thing that you never see. The glory of the cross is Jesus Christ freely giving his life for the many. And in this sermon that I have preached many times, my favorite sermon, this glory of the cross, when you take away all the physical violence, is that you cannot kill. God, you cannot kill the Son of God. In John 10, uh, 15 to 18, Jesus says three times that you cannot take his life from him, but that he can choose freely of his own free will to lay it down. And that's the glory of the cross that Jesus Christ freely laid down his life for us who are the sinners. Friends, I'm going to close tonight before we close with our last question with a poem. Does anyone here like poetry? This is a uniquely Australian poem by the Australian poet Bruce Dorr. And it's a typical Aussie poem. It's got black humour and ridicule and irony. And it's entitled, And a Good Friday Was Had by All. It's written by the centurion or the chief Roman soldier who crucified Jesus. You men there, keep those women back. And God almighty, we lay down on the cross timber. And old Salinas, my offsider, looked at me as if to say, ah, nice work for soldiers. Your mind's not your own once you sign that dotted line, Ave Caesar, and all that malachy, Imperator Rex. Well, this Nazarene didn't really make it any easier, did he? Not like the ones who kick up a fuss so you can do your block and take it out on them. Salinas held the spike steady and I let fly with the sledgehammer, not looking on the downswing, trying hard not to hear over the women's wailing, the bones give way. 
the iron shocking the dumb wood. Orders is orders, I said after it was over. Nothing personal, you understand. We had a drill sergeant once who thought he was God, but he wasn't a patch on you. Then we hauled on the ropes and he rose in the hot air like a diver just leaving the springboard. Arms spread so it seemed over the whole damned creation. Over the big men who must have had it in for him and the curious ones who'll watch anything if it's for free with only the usual women caring anywhere, like his mother. And did I see a blind man in tears? That's the poem. And a good Friday was had by all. The good news today is, friends, that we don't worship a dead guy. That is Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, is alive. And that Jesus Christ is coming back sooner than any of us could dream or would even hope. And I hope that this 32-session prophecy seminar has helped you get ready. I want to tell you tonight, that this Jesus Christ is a safe pair of hands, that I have committed my life to him since I was a young man and I was baptised and I have followed the path and I've followed the way and he has given me great privileges but also great suffering and through the highs and lows he has given me a character and a heart that seeks after God. And I want to commend to you tonight, not my life, but the masterful one that I follow, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm asking you tonight to choose this Jesus. He's not dead, but he's alive. And he's ministers for us right now in the heavenly sanctuary. In the heavenly judgment, he stands there as our advocate, our lawyer, and then goes up as our judge to acquit us if we are found in him. So I'm asking you to sign up with Jesus Christ tonight. Just say to him, yes, I want Jesus to come into my heart. Let me say a prayer right now. Gracious Heavenly Father, I just want to say a prayer for all those right now who will want to give their hearts to Jesus Christ, to sign up allegiance with the King of Heaven. Father, we have done many, many wrong things. We have done terrible things, heinous sins and filthy deeds. In this moment, we want to confess our sins and come under the blood of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and ask that Jesus will come into our hearts, be our saviour, give us power and victory over sin, that we might rightly represent him to others and be able to tell others that Jesus is coming back soon. Bless all of those right now who have said yes to Jesus. Come into my heart and live within me and make me a disciple of the masterful one. And I ask it now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.
and amen. Friends, as you look at Jesus right now and his sacrifice on the cross, do you feel the need of accepting and even re-accepting him and all that the cross means? Let me share with you my answer. I've written, yes, I do, again, again, and again, because I feel a great need of accepting his death for my sins on a daily basis. So every day, every morning, I sign up with Jesus Christ again. What do we discover in tonight's lesson? Many things as we've studied the cross of Jesus Christ. Number one, how important is the cross? My favorite writer wrote this. The cross of Jesus Christ is the one great truth around which all other truths cluster. It is the most important thing that we could speak about. His cross and the glory of it. Number two, what are the four or five counterfeit teachings which destroy the value of Jesus Christ's death on the cross? They are evolution, which denies creation, the immortality of the soul, which denies the fact that we sleep in the grave till Jesus comes, an eternally burning hell that denies the love of God, that he would keep people burning for all eternity, the no Ten Commandments, the no need to te keep the Ten Commandments here on earth, which does away with the orderliness and the glory and the sanctification that comes from God's law. And finally, the imposition of days of worship, that are not the seventh day Sabbath. Number three, how did Judas betray Jesus? It's so sad, isn't it? It was done with a kiss of greeting. It was done with the most intimate of all human gestures, but it was done in a betrayal. Finally, what does the name Barabbas mean? I think we've learned tonight it means Barabbas, son of a father, but we follow Jesus Bar Abba, son of the father. Well, our second last quiz tonight is Prophecy Seminar Quiz number 31. Our response questions are, number one, will you heed the pleading look of Jesus from Calvary tonight? I'm ticking that box. Number two, do you wish to help share this message with the world by becoming a part of Jesus' last day remnant church, the SDA church that's preaching this cross-centered, Christ-centered and prophetic-centered message to all the world? I'm asking you to tick box number two. Question three, if you're not quite ready to make the most important decision now, but wish me to pray that you'll make it soon, then please tick box number three. Friends, if you've made a decision to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, you need to start Bible studies with a Christian minister. You can contact any local Seventh-day Adventist church and ask to speak with the pastor and ask him to start Bible studies with you. If not, I want you to contact me or contact me anyway, and I would be happy to share with you a plan to move forward. Well, let's have a look at our quiz questions tonight. They're all true and, true and false and more true than false. Let's go to question one. Does all truth center in the cross of Jesus Christ? True or false? Number two. It doesn't make any difference what I believe about what happens when I die or how I live, true or false. It doesn't make any difference. Number three, Satan has counterfeited many of God's truths so that we will not see the absolute necessity 
of accepting Jesus Christ's death on Calvary, true or false? Number four, the five doctrines Satan has invented to destroy the cross are evolution, immortality of the soul, eternally burning hell, the Ten Commandments have been abolished, and Sunday keeping, true or false. Number five, all biblical truth reveals that salvation is by grace and is not earned by works. And so, friends, salvation has as its root faith and it has as its fruit works. But all biblical truth reveals that salvation is by grace and it's not earned by our works, true or false. All right, let's go through our answers very quickly. Answer to number one is true. The answer to number two is false. The answer to number three is true. The answer to number four is true. And the answer to number five is, and the people said, hopefully, true. Our answers tonight, one to five, are true, false, true, true, true. Friends, we started tonight our prophecy seminar, session 31 in Daniel 9. And we learned about the truth, the eternal and absolute truth of the cross of Jesus Christ and how he died because he loved us. Friends, our final lesson is Prophecy Seminar Lesson 32, Daniel's final inheritance. We are going to study the kingdom of heaven and we're going to study the new earth. The answers will be to these questions, where do humans go when they die? Number two, why do we go to heaven for 1,000 years? Number three, what type of bodies do we have in heaven, the new earth? And number four, what is the main point of going to heaven? I do have to remind you that the uh, seminar review quiz for those on Zoom, watching this on Zoom tonight, they are due tonight, no later than in the morning. Um, after that, the time has closed because the prizes will be given out this weekend in worship services in the next two weekends in both of my local churches. So please note that this is now due. Thank you so much. Please write your name at the top so that I know who it's from and late test certainly cannot win any prizes. The prize for the exhibit will be a voucher to the Better Books and Food or the Adventist Book Center. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly father, we just want to thank you tonight that Jesus was faithful, that he submitted his human earthly will to the cup of suffering, sacrifice and surrender. And because of that, we are promised eternal life if we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour. Father, tonight we've wanted to accept Jesus again. Some have accepted Jesus Christ for the first time. I pray a special Holy Spirit anointing and blessing on all who hear these words, that they might have Jesus abiding in their hearts by faith every moment of every day and will be ready when Jesus comes very soon. Is my prayer tonight in Jesus' powerful name. Let all the people say, Amen. been listening to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel with Pastor David Price. For more information about this series, you can visit the YouTube page, True Blue SDA, all one word. 
That's True Blue SDA. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.